Hi, welcome back to Office Chats, a podcast presented by Madam Blue. I'm your host, Valeria, and today's guest is Skylar Mapes, the co-founder of Exile Olive Oil and the co-author of The Olive Oil Enthusiast. Exile is a high-quality Italian olive oil brand that is listed on the official index of the world's best olive oils and has been named on Oprah's Favorite Things twice. Skylar's co-founder and husband Giuseppe's family have grown olives for over 100 years in Calabria, Italy. In this episode, Skylar shares how she and Giuseppe established an olive oil brand that was missing from the market and what exactly goes into their olive oil production process in Calabria. You'll definitely want to stick around for the end of the episode to hear Skylar's advice for aspiring business owners and to learn where the name Exile comes from. This was such a fascinating conversation for me and I couldn't think of a better episode to end this season of the podcast with, so I want to take a quick second to thank everyone who's tuned in this year. And I'm looking forward to another year of incredible guests and conversations in 2024. So without further ado, let's get into the show. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. I'd love to just get started with a little bit about your career experience in the design and wine industries before you founded Exout and maybe how those experiences shaped your entrepreneurial path. Sure. So my background is in the design industry, particularly architecture and 3D modeling. So I worked on a lot of high-end single-family homes and public structures, like headquarters for tech companies in the Bay Area, because I'm from Oakland. So my work was primarily focused on design in the Bay Area. And as much as I love the architecture and the design industry, it takes forever to get a project built, right? So if you're building a headquarters, it's going to be like a five or seven year project. If you're doing a single family home, that takes two years, three years if you're doing a custom home. And while it's a wonderful, beautiful thing to like build your career out over multi-year projects, I wanted something that felt a little bit more, had a faster turnaround. And CPG is better for that, right? But having that background in the design industry helped me to basically view whatever CPG product we were going to create as a mini building. How are we going to design that thing? How does the identity exist in time and space and how are people going to interact with it? When you're designing a building, you're thinking about how people are going to interact in a space. And when you're designing a product, you're thinking about how people are going to interact with that product. So there's a lot of things that you can take from designing a structure, a single family home or headquarters and apply it to designing a CPG product like a bottle of olive oil. It really is just like a mini building. And so that helped with design. The wine industry really helped me to get a better understanding of what it goes, what what, what it takes to produce a high quality product. I worked for Rockwall Winery in Alameda. They're unfortunately no longer in business, but I worked under Shauna Rosenblum, who's an amazing wine maker. And working in that cellar, again, helped me really understand what it takes to create a high quality product. And wine is similar to olive oil in the sense that you have harvest taking place in late summer, early fall, and you have like that harvest spirit. But the difference is that wine is a product that gets aged and olive oil is not. It's more like a fresh juice. Got it. 
So that's two really different industries that you kind of got to like dig your hands into and explore before you started your own company. And so I want to know like how meeting your husband and co-founder played a role in your, in, in not only the inception of your business, but just your like venture into the olive oil world. Well, first off, I didn't want to start an olive oil company. And <laughs> it turns out that actually a lot of people that work in our industry that are not like Italian, that don't have groves, they really kind of fall into it. It's not something that you set out. Most people don't set out and say, you know what? I want to have a career in olive oil. It's just like not something that you choose for yourself for the most part. Um, but I met Giuseppe in Rome almost nine years ago, almost 10 years. It's just wild to think about. And we ended up doing long distance for a while. He moved to the US. Again, we were living in the Bay Area and he was walking around a really nice grocery store in Oakland and he didn't see any Calabrian olive oil. And Calabria is the second largest producer of olive oil in Italy. Southern Italy produces 84% of all of Italy's olive oil and Puglia and Calabria make up well over 60% of that. Um, and just as a side note, for everyone to provide some context, Puglia is going through um, a disease right now that's called Silella, and it's killing a lot of the olive trees, which is driving the production down. So Calabrian production is increasing. But you have these two powerhouses. And how come there's not Calabrian olive oil on grocery store shelves in the U.S. when the U.S. is obsessed with Italian products? And it was just like Tuscany, Tuscany. Um, Sicily and these other regions. And I'm like, this is wild considering, especially considering Tuscany only produces like 3% of all, the, all of the olive oil in Italy. So like, I have questions about that, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> the math is just simply yeah. not mathing, okay? <laughs> it's not, it's not mathing. And so he was gonna have his mom actually send an entire vat of olive oil from Calabria to the Bay Area and our friends started asking for olive oil. So that's kind of where the idea of X of starting an olive oil company came from. He's like, I can, we can just do this. Like my family's been doing this forever. We just need to learn how to do it in a more like um, industrial capacity at a larger capacity and market the product properly. And that is how things got started. So it seems like it was almost first out of a need for just the two of you, like, hey, we're not seeing the quality that we know exists. But then once maybe like your friends started asking for it, you realize this kind of has some legs to it. That and also realizing there was not a lot of equity within the market for Calabrian products, which is something that irked me. And it's something that still bothers me because Calabria is one of the poor regions and underdeveloped regions in Italy. And this is due, this, there's, we could go on and on to talk about this. There's a million reasons for why, but basically this region needs more funding. It needs people to invest in it. It needs investment. It needs development. It needs growth. And so for us, I felt very personally invested because, you know, my husband's from here. So I'm like, why aren't more people enjoying Calabrian olive oil? Why aren't more people enjoying products from Calabrian except for Calabrian chilies, which is like the most fav famous food from this region in the US. But there's also like Chopin onions, which are a really beautiful, sweet onion, and obviously olive oil and delicious wines. But it kind of, I felt very, um, almost like the industry was getting gypped, you know? Mm -hmm. Like I was like, this is like, come on, this is not making sense. We need investment. We need people to see what beauty and delicious things that Calabria can offer. Yeah. So it was personal. 
And so can you tell me maybe about the first time that you went to Calabria and how your family's olive groves played a role in kind of the inception and eventually the success of Exile? Yes. So uh, Giuseppe and I had made an agreement. When we, when we met, I was living in Barcelona and he was living in Rome. And he said, I'll come visit you in Barcelona if you fly back to Rome and come drive down to Calabria with me. And I'm like, well, how far is Calabria? And he's like, it's like driving. He's like, it's like seven hour drive. And I'm like, okay, I'm from Oakland. So that's like driving from Oakland to LA, right? We ended up driving down to Calabria and that was my first time seeing the Grove nine years ago. And it's crazy to think, like, I remember vividly going and seeing the trees for the first time and thinking like, wow, these are beautiful. And nine years later, I'm still like walking in that same grove with the same trees, but we've taken better care of them and trimmed them over the years. And having those trees is probably the biggest reason why we were able to start XL because olive trees take between four to seven years to reach maturity so they can produce mm -hmm. enough fruit in order for you to produce oil. And that's really, really, really important because it means that this industry is rooted in multi-generational wealth and owning property. So the more land that you own and the more trees you own and the older your trees are, the more oil you're able to produce. So if your family's been, and you know, Italians, they live forever. So they'll be, <laughs> they'll be like, my family's owned this property for 300 years and they just kept growing it and growing it and growing it. And next thing you know, they own acres and acres and acres and it's all olive groves. And so they're able to produce more olive oil or sell those olives and so it really gives them a leg up that's fascinating and something people probably don't realize like it's not an industry you can just like break into and immediately have all the resources you need or even create your own resources because like you said it's something that takes years to even get like to phase one exactly you can't it's the same thing with wine like you need your grapes the vines to get to a certain age right olive trees, they need to be seven years old before you're really able to crank out enough fruit for you to produce oil. And the older your trees get, the more fruit they produce. So we have trees on our property that are over a hundred years old and those bad boys crank out fruit like crazy. And then we have trees that are 30 years old that have, after we've rehabilitated them fully are cranking out quite a bit of fruit now. We're really happy with that yield. We just planted a bunch of new trees. They're three years old. We still haven't harvested them yet. And we're not going to harvest till next year or the year after, but it's an investment. So if I'm 31 today and I'm planting a tree, I'm not going to have a full incredible harvest until I'm like 37. When wow. I'm 40 years old. Isn't that just crazy, That's crazy to think about? Yeah. Cause you'll, you'll and be like in a new stage of your life, like everything will be different. So it's, that's so cool. Yeah. And so when we pick up a bottle of olive oil from a shelf, that bottle likely it took probably 15 years for that pro that bottle to like come into existence, that bottle of oil to come into existence. And this is also one of the reasons why I get quite feisty when people complain about the price of olive oil. Like, I don't want to hear about it. Okay. <laughs> I don't want to hear about it. <laughs> These trees, you get Okay, these trees, they're like 100 years old, 150 years old, they're 75 years old, 25, 15, like they're putting in the work. Mm -hmm. I know I'm here. I put in the work to plant more of them. Yeah. And also it, the bottle 
last like 30 days, a bottle of olive oil lasts 30 days. What, how long, what, when was the last time you finished a <laughs> bottle of wine and, 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 you know, over a month? You can't. Never. <laughs> it's gone in a day and an exactly. hour. Exactly. Yeah. That's a very good point. Well, can you give us like an overview of what, what else goes into the olive oil production process and maybe any aspects that you were surprised to encounter once you kind of got into the nitty gritty of it? Yeah. So making olive oil starts in the spring with the, with the fruit buds. And again, olive is a, the olive is a fruit and it has a pit. So it's similar to like a cherry or like, you know, a mango, you have your flowering in the spring fruit grows all the way through the summer. And then we're in the South in Calabria where it's hotter. So the fruit is ripening more quickly. We're harvesting early October, like the first week of October. And that what that entails, is basically we go out and we harvest the olives. We collect them. And when you can use a, a tree shaker or a branch shaker, a tree shaker, it's similar to the ones that they use in California for walnuts. Um, so that it shakes the trunk of the tree and all the olives fall into like a canopy. And then you transport the olives to the mill. And we don't press. People keep using this term pressing olives. And I know that that's like an easy term to use because they once they used to press olives, but we mill olives today. And so they go into a hopper, they get washed, and then they go into either like a grinder or a smasher, which again, it grinds or smashes the olives. And then they go into a malaxer, which looks like an ice cream machine on its side. It has like this kind of horizontal arm that's churning. And basically what it's doing is it's mixing the olives into a paste. And so it looks like olive tapenade. And it's preparing the olives to um, for the olive like mash to separate the oil. It's preparing that cycle mm. because in an olive fruit, you have flesh, you have skin, you have pit, and then you have oil and water. And you need to separate the oil from those other elements. And so the malaxer is preparing the oil to be separated. And then from there, it goes into a centrifuge. And a centrifuge is a machine that spins really, really fast. And in that machine, it's going to basically separate the oil from those other elements. So just depending on the type of machine, it might separate oil and then it um, gets rid of the water and one part and then kind of like physical pit and flesh and other elements out of another part of the machine. Mm -hmm. And then the oil goes through a filter that removes any additional water because one of the enemies of oil is water. Obviously, you know, they don't mix. And so it goes to another machine that helps remove any leftover water. And then the oil exits the mill. When the oil exits the mill, you want to filter it in order to create a, sh a shelf stable product. And that's what's sold on most grocery store shelves in the U.S. bottles that are labeled as extra virgin. That's so much you had. I mean, I'm sure you picked it up quickly being that like it's part of your family now and everything, but in just like a couple of years, it seems like you kind of went from knowing not much about olive oil to now you're a full-blown expert and like have published a book and we'll get into all of that. But it's crazy how much you absorb when you're just like thrown into the business. Actually insane. And I don't realize it until we have these conversations and I have to talk about all the things that goes into producing olive oil, producing high quality extra virgin olive oil. Because again, when you're in it, you're not realizing every single thing that you're learning, but every harvest you get better. And every harvest you learn something new, you have new techniques, you learn to read when to harvest your olives better. 
And since we are also olive farmers, it makes a huge difference because we're not just buying olives from someone or just buying oil from someone. We're, we have our own olive trees and we have two different properties that we work with. So it's really need to be on top of things. Mm -hmm. And just out of curiosity, when you're separating the oil from all the other parts of the of the olive, do you do anything with the waste? Oh my God, I love this question. Okay, so the water gets recycled. So that will go into like agriculture watering. And then the physical material is called sansa. And it kind of feels like mulch. And that is used for so many things. So they might take part of it because it's very rich in nutrients and healthy fats. They might take part of it and put it in food for cattle. They might use some of it in compost. And then they take a huge portion of it and they make pellets for furnaces so people can heat their homes in the winter. Because again, it's like, you know, it's part of olive and olive has a lot of fat in it and it can burn really, really quickly. That's really awesome. well. Yeah. I know I read on your site that like reinvesting into the community you're in is really important. So I, I was just curious if like that was also a way that you're able to do that. So that's that's awesome. A lot of innovation that every industry just keeps expanding on, which is cool to see. Once you and Giuseppe were seeing that this could be a viable product and viable company in the States, when did you make the move to Calabria and really start investing in the business and taking the initial steps to get it off the ground? We still go back and forth between the U.S. Mm -hmm. and between Texas and Calabria. But I think that one of the biggest investments we did, a pivotal war, it was a moment where I felt like we were really doing something. It was when we planted, I think it was around 40 trees in 2019 or 20, I think it was the winter of 2019, I believe. And then we planted 300 trees in the summer of 2021. And we had already made significant investment in our company, in our business in 2019 and 2020. But I think that moment where we planted the 300 trees in 2021 was an incredibly pivotal moment. because it was almost like we can't come back from that. Because mm -hmm. when you plant trees on property, it's very permanent. And there was that summer, 2021, where I felt like, oh my God, we just planted 300 trees. Like we're really in this. Even though I already knew we were in it, it was a, <laughs> it was a pivotal moment for me. <laughs> like there's really no coming back from this. Yeah. And so at that point, were you both still working other jobs or had you gone full-time into the olive oil business? We had gone full-time. Okay, got it. So there was no going back. <laughs> All the trees were planted. There was <laughs> everything was planted everything was it felt like we're really putting roots in like literally yeah that's <laughs> that's exciting though and I want to talk about like the brand design and identity for a second because we've talked about how you had a your career experience in design and I think your packaging is kind of known for being really distinct and beautiful so I'm curious where the the company name comes from and what role you played in the brand's visual identity so the first bottle that we did with the dark green labels with the white writing, I designed those labels completely. And that was some, a moment I was really proud of because I absolutely adored those labels and it made us look very different on the shelf because it looked like a wine bottle instead of a regular olive oil bottle. But the problem was it was too dark. So it wasn't selling as well because it was such a dark label. We also had to change our bottles. And so we ended up doing a rebrand in 2022 
actually 2023, we launched the rebrand and those updated labels have the goddess head and she is from our book, The Olive Oil Enthusiast. And that was the first label that we kind of like helped relinquished to a designer. I did some of it, the designer did some of it. Then we had the illustrations done by our illustrator for our book. And so that kind of felt like a, a very full circle moment we could use the illustrations because we, we own our illustrations from our books we could use them we have full rights to them and we all i was also able to release some control which was a huge as a founder is just so <laughs> it's probably one of the hardest things you have to do is release control to someone else especially if you're a control freak with design like me and so that was tough that was going to be my follow-up like was it hard what was that like because it's not only your business, but it's a family business, right? It's so personal and like you've invested so much of your life and your time into it. I can see how like in your head, it's like, I know what's best. How is someone who's not even part of the company going to do something that's as personal? But it kind of speaks to what you were saying about like just letting go. Sometimes you reap rewards and benefits that you don't even, you wouldn't have otherwise. The hardest part for me is the fact that the olive oil industry is still not very well understood by many people. So since it's not very well understood, it's easy for someone who's in it, like myself or like Giuseppe, to be like, well, we know so much more than you, because technically we do. <laughs> and then to project those emotions and those feelings onto other parts of our business where we feel like people need to know everything about the business in order to do the thing. But you don't need to know everything about olive oil to design an olive oil label, as long as you have the proper guidance. But that is a huge hurdle for someone, again, who's like really invested in education and invested in producing the product. It was really hard to get over that, but I was like, I need to get over my ego. I need to get over this. I don't have the capacity. I don't have the like know-how of how to use all these tools to make this label. And I have to give it over to this person who's able to do it better than me. Yeah, no, that's a good point. And also just like, you you kind of forget like, wow, I'm actually in a place where I could afford to hire someone, someone else or where we need to, like our brand is growing so much that I actually have to outsource. So that's just an, yeah. another another way to look at it as well. The original label wasn't selling as well. That's something that you all pivoted and fixed. What were other challenges that you faced in establishing Exao in the market? Copycat brands. Starting an olive oil company is really hot right now and people think it's an easy peasy thing to do. It's not. It's also a really challenging moment for CPG, for e-commerce, for D2C. It, it's a tough time right now. Between... The issues with people getting funding or companies just kind of going down because of the overall market right now feeling shaky, it has created a lot of a tumultuous environment. And even though we don't have any external funding, like we are completely family owned and operated business, thank God. So I don't need so I don't want someone breathing down my neck. <laughs> it we've still felt it. And so it, it feels like there's just a lot of things moving and a lot of things active right now. And again, there's a lot of copycats, there's a lot of brands that are trying to do the same thing that XL is doing, but they're not going to be XL. <laughs> it's not going to happen. I'm sorry. 
one of the things that makes us stand out is our investment in education. It's the reason we were able to get our book deal. When we started in 2017, education was one of the pillars for XL. It's We spent three entire years talking to our customers to get to know them. What do they need? What's missing? What don't they understand about the product? And you can't just like pull that information out of your ass. Sorry uh, to say that. On, can I say that on this podcast? Yeah, you, you can cuss okay, on this thank podcast. You. <laughs> okay, thank you. You can't pull that information out of your ass in six months or a year and sell it to people. It's not going to work. Yeah. And people can see through it. For sure. And I think at a certain point, the quality can speak for itself, right? So what are some of the unique flavors and qualities that set Exile apart from all the others? Okay, well, first off, we grow our olives along the Ionian coast of Calabria within two kilometers of the, uh, the Ionian Sea. And our trees, like I said, they've planted over multiple generations. But the cool thing, the thing that makes us stand out is that we have a, cult, a couple different cultivars on our properties and people are obsessed with single. They're like, we only have one cultivar. And I'm like, okay, good luck with that. What do you mean cultivar? One type, like one varietal. Okay, okay, so like, you know, it. with wine, it's like, this is a petite, like a hundred percent petite Syrah, a hundred percent cab. People keep obsessing over single cultivars and olive oil. And I'm sick of it. I've had enough. It's ridiculous. Because if you go and you look back at these old properties, these old estates, especially in the South, you're going to find Frantoyo, Coratina, Carolea, Noche del Belice. You're going to find all these different cultivars on a single property. And the reason is because after World War II, the Italian government came and they said to farmers, to the men that were coming back from war that wanted to get into farming, they're like, hey, plant these types of olive trees on your properties and olive trees they need when they need to pollinate they either need another tree to pollinate them or they're able to self-pollinate and if you keep if we keep going down this like monocultivar single cultivar thing and the trees that we're planting are not self-pollinating or they're not able to like plant other trees within those groves to help pollinate the entire grove it creates issues and it defeats the entire purpose of, you know, farming ethically. And so these old farms have all these different types of cultivars. And so it creates incredible biodiversity on those farms. And it also helps to make sure that the trees are able to poll get pollinated. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. So, and it's also a piece of history. So we're not trying to go and like fix something because there's nothing broken there we're quite literally capturing a piece of history. Now, don't get us wrong. When we planted our 300 trees, we did plant for the most part a single varietal, but we still within that estate, we have probably five different cultivars on that property. And so we're not going to have any issues with pollination. I love that um, historical context too. That's something like, how would I ever learn that if I didn't talk to you today? You know what I mean? Oh, random. Um, but <laughs> but what is the argument for then having a single cultivar? Because I'm like sold after just hearing you speak, but I'm curious, like, is it something that's just a trend or people don't even know that there's a con to it? Okay. There's a couple different things. For me, I see it as like a prestige thing. People are like, this is a 
X1. This is just 100% Nutella del Belice, which like if you're in Sicily and you are in the region of where they grow Nutella del Belice, like fine. If that's what you want to do, if that's your decision and your choice to do that, fine. But if you take that tree and you remove it out of its context and you only plant that tree in, I don't know, somewhere else in Italy or somewhere else in California where it's not known to grow as well, it just doesn't make sense. It's like, why are we trying to force something that shouldn't be? Seems like the the alternative is, is kind of just disrupting the natural order of things. So I appreciate that. That's something you're, you're obviously super passionate about, but that you make a priority being that you have so many trees on your property and are producing something for people to enjoy, not just in that region, but, you know, in the States as well. Also, one last thing to say about that is because we there's already trees that exist that are 50 years old, 70 years old, planting, because there's some people that are like, for me, are out of their minds. They're ripping up the old trees and planting monocultivars. I'm like, you're crazy. Unless, yeah. of course, a tree is sick or something. If yeah. you have a sick tree, you don't get rid of it. But to remove something like that, in Italy, for the most part, they view it as like a historical tree. But there are some, you know, it happens all the time. Old trees get dug up and it hurts to see, especially considering what's happening in Puglia right now. There's people who are losing hundreds, thousands, millions of trees have died. Small farmers are losing hundreds of trees, thousands of trees. That's a piece of their heritage. It's a piece of their history. Mm-hmm. Our trees were planted by Giuseppe's grandfather and his father and us. So that's three generation of farmers. So to, to lose those trees for us would feel like we're losing a window to Giuseppe's grandfather's soul because he died in the olive grove like he actually lost it like wow. he was working and he was tilling the soil and he passed away in the grove wow he was doing it what he loved mm-hmm. but like that would I can't even imagine so folks are already dealing with that in Puglia so I, I just for me I see it as this obsession with a single monocultivar, single cultivar as this like obsession, a fad almost. Yeah, that's horrible. Especially, I mean, those trees are here before us. It's like, we have no right to do that. And and especially now, like you're saying in a time where there's wildfires, droughts, so many things that are against a tree living a long life already. That sounds like really bad karma too. Right? Yeah. I'm like, oh no. Well, clearly the approach you're taking is working because you've been indoctrinated into the official index of the world's best olive oils. And you've also been named on Oprah's favorite things twice now. Huge congrats. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious Thank how you. those accolades, as well as the feedback from just your customers in general, impact you and everyone working behind the scenes. You know, this industry is very, olive oil industry is very lonely because you're dealing with groves, you're dealing in the, in the country, working in the countryside. And even though technically like Italy is very communal and harvest, it's, it very feels very communal. The work year round is very lonely. So to get this recognition is really, really, really important because it helps to just reaffirm that the things that we're doing are correct like we're headed in the right direction because without it it would be really easy to just think no one's looking at us no one's going to see this no one like why are my why am I even here doing this and so this has just been like we need it it's what we needed 
to make mm-hmm. sure that like we're on the right track to get Oprah's favorite things, to be I making it onto Forbes 30 under 30 for food and wine and all the other things that have happened the past couple of years. The book especially has been something that we're like, okay, yes, we, it was like, we, we did it moment. Whenever you make Oprah's favorite things list, I know this is your second time now. Do you see a boost in sales from that recognition? Yeah, of course. It's Oprah, you know, she has her like Amazon <laughs> but she also has her Amazon page and um, we're mentioned on her website and on the social media channels and we just were featured on an Amazon blog so there is a huge boost in sales which is absolutely amazing Mm -hmm. and it gives you that clout it gives you that bragging right I can just go and tell people I was on Oprah's favorite things which is amazing because I I remember watching the show as a kid Mm -hmm. which is probably the craziest thing about the experience is if you were old enough to like watch the show after school as a kid and remember all those very specific moments and I remember 2003 when she gave away the car (laughs) and my mom and I were like running and screaming around the house with (laughs) everyone else in the U.S. right all of us are running and screaming around our living rooms And then 2020 was the last year of O Magazine. And so she had her very last O Magazine. And that was the year we were in Oprah's Favorite Things. And I never thought I would be in O Magazine. So that was crazy Mm -hmm. because she was on the cover in a car and was like, it's been a a hell of a ride. It's been amazing. Like you're not going to get a car, but you can get all these other amazing (laughs) things. Yeah. I know that we talked earlier about how you're reinvesting into the community. And I know that you also have a commitment to work with small businesses, which I think is amazing. So can you share more about how Exile reinvests in local businesses? Yeah. So we get everything. Like if we need our bottles, we get from a local family-owned bottle company. Our boxes are done locally by a family-owned business even or get our pallets from them also for bottling and any additional fruit that we need we get from a locally owned estate that's just down the road for us from us and again where we bottle family owned business so we don't work with any like large industrial huge companies in Italy at all and then in the US we're working with a small 3PL that's based in Ohio And we've been really happy working with them. It says so much about your values as a family business that you may, that you make it a point to buy local and support your community in Calabria, which that type of trait for me. And I know for so many others makes me want to support a business even more knowing that, okay, my purchase of this olive oil actually has so many ripple effects for their community. Exactly. What is one thing you think people should be aware of when it comes to the olive oil products they're consuming? Look for a country of origin on the back of the label. You want one country of origin, preferably a region of origin. And it's even better if you're able to buy a product from someone that you know, like a small producer like Excel, where you're able to really work, like buy something from people that are working the land, working with the fruit and understand the product super well. Mm-hmm. And then what about any tips for storing olive oil at home? Once a bottle's open, it should be consumed within 45 days an open bottle. Okay. For peak, for peak flavor. Mm -hmm. 
always buy olive oil in a dark bottle or a dark tin because uh, it can photo oxidize and go rancid mm. faster. So again, dark bottle, keep in a cool, dry, dark place. Try not to store bottles right next to like the fridge or a really hot appliance. And it's easy to do this if you're not, if you just are having it right next to the stove, put it a little bit further away from the stove or in a cabinet that's not super hot. What are your favorite memories from Exile's journey so far? Making it onto Forbes. And I know this is not like a specific in the Grove moment. This is a professional moment, but making it onto Forbes 30 under 30 was crazy. Mm -hmm. And then our 2017 harvest was an amazing harvest. It was so good. I'll never forget that harvest. It just tasted wonderful. I love it. And of course, this year launching the Olive Oil Enthusiast, how did the idea for that book come about and what can people expect? So you can buy the Olive Oil Enthusiast, the book at any retailer where they sell books, Target, Walmart, Barnes and Nobles, Amazon. And it's a book dedicated to our customers and people that want to learn more about olive oil to all the olive oil enthusiasts around the world. It dives into the how, who, what, when of olive oil. And it came about because our publisher was looking for someone to write a book about olive oil. So we actually got super, super lucky because we didn't have to go and pitch a publisher. They came to us because they're looking for someone who, who could communicate things properly and in a digestible way about the olive oil industry to consumers. Olive oil industry has done a terrible job about of communicating properly to consumers. And it's a combination of the industry just being old, again, like we're dealing with, you know, thousand-year-old trees, things aren't moving real quick over here. So <laughs> we're, it's an old industry. There's a lot of older people in the industry, and it's an industry that doesn't take well to change, especially when you're dealing with countries like Italy <laughs> and That's Spain true. and Portugal. They're not exactly known for their innovation, okay? Mm -hmm. So it's an old-school industry the modern day consumer, people in their 20s and their 30s are not, there's a huge lack of communication between what's happening in the olive grove and what's happening in the grocery store, like in the bottle of that product. That's very true. Just this conversation alone has made me realize like how little I know about olive oil. And I'm someone that consumes it every day. Like that's the only oil that I use. So I can't wait to like actually read the book and learn even more. But I think the fact that the publishers reached out to you kind of must have been really reaffirming of like, okay, all the education we're prioritizing with our brand is actually working because they're coming to you as kind of like the thought leaders in the space that can connect with younger audiences. Absolutely. It was, we were really happy because that was exactly what we wanted to happen. And so it was just like, okay, we're on the right path. It was your part of your good karma for not ripping trees out. <laughs> I think that's, that's what did it. Looking ahead, what is your vision for Exile in the years to come? Maybe some like goals that you could share or just like your overall mission? Honestly, we just want to keep getting good olive oil into as many people's hands as possible. In this day and age, especially for people that work in CPG, it's easy to set these goals for like, we want to hit $10 million, $15 million, $20 million. I'm really happy with how things are going and where I'm existing in time and space. 
I want to expand our olive oil club. I want more people to enjoy our high quality oil, but I don't want XL to get so big that it feels like it's unmanageable. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Like I'm content being a small, medium-sized business that does something really well. I'm really happy with that. I don't need to be the next billion dollar olive oil company because I'm not going to be able to manage the estates with the integrity that we're able to now. And that's super, super important for us. I think that's such a healthy mindset to have too, because I think a lot of people in general, not just entrepreneurs, sometimes get stuck on like having this high value goal, whether it's like, I want to make this much money, like you were saying, but they forget to just be happy in the moment and like recognize how, how well they're doing right now. So I love that you just said that, because I think it's a good reminder for everyone to just like appreciate where you are now and continue doing like work that really fulfills you. I agree. And I also want to keep writing. It's a great goal. The goal is like, to have this company that is a successful olive oil company that makes incredible products that we have incredible customers where I can feel like I can have conversations with them and know who they are. I love that. Like I know so many of our club members and I like that I recognize names, whether people are coming or going or whatever, I recognize their names. I know who they are. And that brings me joy because it feels much more personal. Like I'm dealing with real people versus just Mm -hmm. like an entire list of hundreds or thousands of names of people who I have no idea who they are, what they do. Totally. I love that. And it goes back to Exile's family values that we were talking about earlier. I like to close out each episode by asking our guests to provide a few words of wisdom. So what is your biggest piece of advice for founders and entrepreneurs? My piece of advice is borrowed from Sarah Blakely, because I think that this is the best advice anyone ever gave me. And she has said this over and over again, and I will keep repeating it forever. Do not tell anyone your idea. And don't don't talk about your idea with anyone, especially your family and friends and your really close people to you. The reason is because your friends and your family they are, they want you to succeed, but they're afraid for you for your failure. So they're really fearful that you'll, cra- you'll crash and burn. So that you're like, you have your mom who's like, oh my God, but if it doesn't succeed and like, and then you're going to have to. And it's like, I don't need that right now. Like I'm building a dream and I need to, you have to work through your dream by yourself. You, and, and that's really hard to do because you want to bounce ideas off people. You want to run and tell your best friend or tell whoever about this incredible idea that you have, keep it to yourself and work through that idea. Take a lot of steps, launch it, do whatever you need to do. And then later down the line, have a conversation with the people who you care about, about that Mm -hmm. thing. And if you are going to tell someone about your idea or the thing that you're launching or whatever it is that you're doing, tell someone who doesn't give a damn if you fail. Because those are the people that'll be like, yeah, and then what if you did this and this and this? And then you know that they don't care if you lose all your money or they don't care (laughs) that you crash and burn. So you know that they're giving you this advice that you could take if you want, but they're not going to try and protect you because there's always going to be risk involved and your family and friends are going to be risk averse. 
I had never heard that advice from Sarah Blakely before. So you could have claimed it as your own and I would have believed you, but that's a really interesting perspective to keep in mind because some, yeah, sometimes the people closest to us are just a little bit too close in that sense that they, they have worry and doubts that are not coming from a bad place, but they're, they are negative thoughts nonetheless. You can't work through your creative ideas with the, with that. Yeah. Really quick follow-up. I think I forgot to confirm, like, where did the name come from? Oh, yeah. It's Latin. And in ancient Rome, they would call the oil that was reserved for nobility, ex albis ulivis. Mm. And it means olives harvested young. So that's the early harvest. And so when the olives were harvested early, they would go into the press. And during this time, they're using a press. That means that the oil was more vibrant and green. So it's an earlier harvest. And also the mill was still fresh and new. And so that was the highest quality product. So it's reserved for nobility. And so in a way, it means noble oil. If you have to like go through the different translations to what it means in modern day terms, noble oil. And we think that everybody deserves to, you know, have noble oil because we are nobility. Yeah, I love that. Perfect name. And thank you so much for sharing so many cool insights and like little known facts for those of us who aren't familiar with the industry. But I'd love to just close off with having you share where people can keep up with you and Exile online and on social media. You can find Exile at Exile, that's E-X-A-U, oliveoil.com. You can buy olive oil, Oprah's favorite things, gift sets, holiday gift sets. We have everything on our gift guide right now on our website. And then you can find us on Instagram and TikTok at Exile Olive Oil. Thank you so much to Skylar for joining the podcast and thank you to everyone listening. I'll be back with another season of the show in 2024. So have a great holiday season and see you then.